You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to Real Vision. I'm here today talking to Stephanie Kelton, a professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Deficit Myth. Uh, I happen to have a copy here as well. Um, Seth, thanks for joining us. Um, first of all, I want to congratulate you on the success of the book. Uh, the last time I checked, it was number 13 on the bestseller list, and uh, hopefully we can get it up to uh, uh, closer to the top when we're finished this interview. Let's start by discussing the core of the book, um, which seeks to explore and describe uh, modern monetary theory, aka MMT. Um, thanks to you and many others, uh, it's finally getting a serious hearing in both policymaking circles and also in the, the mainstream media. And with that, of course, um, have come the usual um, caricatures and distortions, as well as some uh, very complimentary work. So um, I wanted to give you this platform first of all, to discuss the core principles, and then we'll move on to specific aspects of the theory, um, the policy, and investment implications that you discuss in the book. So why don't you start with the, the core principles um, that you um, outline in the deficit myth? Sure. And let me say thank you for the opportunity to join you and have this conversation. I, um, I'm excited about it. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the core tenets of MMT or the core principles. I think you have to basically go to where I begin the story. And that's in the first chapter of the book, a chapter that I call Don't Think of a Household. And I'm sort of riffing off of um, the work of George Lakoff, who is a well-known UC Berkeley. I think he may be retired now, but he's a linguist. And he used to do a lot of work, uh, I think mainly with the Democratic Party, in terms of what he calls framing, right? And the language and the words that we choose to use become very important in the political discourse and shaping the way that we try to understand complex things like public finance and the role of debt or deficits in the economy. And so I, I start here because of his little book uh, that was very popular called Don't Think of an Elephant. And Lakoff's advice was, don't reinforce bad framing. Come up with new framing. If you want people to have a better understanding, don't take a poor understanding and repeat it again and again. And when we, in economics, I think what we do is we take poor framing supplied to us by um, places like the Peterson Foundation, right, which has for decades invested enormous sums of money. When I say enormous, I mean billions of dollars into, you know, basically, I want to say indoctrinating the population to have some particular beliefs about the nature of government spending and deficits and so forth. And so uh, I want us to not think of a household because the federal government is not like a household. It should not operate its budget as if it faced the same sorts of constraints that you and I face. Um, and why and so is I, that? Just go, go on and explain why yeah. the, the household analogy is a, a flawed one. 
Right. So the the key difference, and I have a little uh, graphic in the book that I use to just make it as clear as I possibly can. The the line you want to draw between the federal government, let's say of the United States of America, and everybody else, that line that distinguishes their fiscal capacities, their spending capacities from ours, is really down to the fact that they can issue our currency, the U.S. dollar, and the rest of us can't. We are currency users. The federal government is a currency issuer. In fact, the federal government has the sole legal authority to create the U.S. dollar, to issue our currency. It cannot come from anywhere else. You and I can't do it. I mean, technically, we could try, um, but it is called counterfeiting. If we get caught, it's against the law. And so, you know, places us in a fundamentally different position vis-a-vis the currency. And it turns out that once you get that right in your head, a lot of the other myths and misunderstandings can kind of fall away on their own. So another uh, way of of framing that same issue, I know that MNT has used the distinction between a user and issuer of the currency. And obviously that goes beyond households, but it does have implications for uh, economic policy in regards as to why, say, a state is different from the federal government or why other countries who which aren't, as you call it, monetarily sovereign, might have different policy choices available to them than um, countries that do issue their currency as opposed to just use it. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's funny where we are in the world today, and you and I are sitting here in the United States, but I'm sure that some of your viewers will be watching from other parts of the world as well. But look where we are, right? The coronavirus, the health pandemic, the ensuing economic fallout, people um, seeing their jobs disappear. If we could all handle it ourselves because we were just currency issuers, you wouldn't be looking at the potential for you know millions of people missing their rent payment, not being able to afford the medicines that they have, not being able to buy food, the line, the stretch of cars at the food bank because people can't afford to go to the grocery store. You wouldn't have governors all across this country you know, pleading with the federal government, help us, help us, we need money, right? We can't pay the bills without help from Congress. You wouldn't have businesses, small businesses, struggling to pay their, you know, uh, their mortgages and their workers, because if they could just issue the currency, they'd have no problem. The difference is, is really critically important. There is uh, one game in town at the moment, and that is the currency issuer, and only the federal government and its fiscal agent, the Federal Reserve, can step up and provide the financial resources that are the lifeline to allowing people to pay their bills and businesses to continue to survive through this. And another adjunct of that, of course, is that you um, note the difference between, say, a a private business and the federal government. I think that's another uh, conflation that people, uh, uh, including the Peterson Institute, they always talk about the public and private debt interchangeably. Um, when, as you say, a a private business faces that kind of constraint, uh, the federal government or a state, indeed, the state as an issuer of the currency doesn't face that problem. So, in fact, ironically, the the one time where the U.S. government did get rid of uh, both the the national debt and also run uh, consecutive budget surpluses, I think it was 1837, Levi Woodbury, the um, Treasury Secretary of, uh, of Andrew Jackson and an eight-year depression followed. So they, they, they followed all the advice of the, of the Peterson Institute. So let me um, take that uh, a little bit further now. Um, you um, 
say that, uh, that the federal government doesn't face the same kind of constraints the US federal government because it is an issuer, um, that of course has led to a lot of caricatures that you see in the popular media. Oh, um, in that case, what MMT is saying is that deficits don't matter, we can print as much as we like, et cetera, et cetera. That's gonna lead us to uh, Weimar um, uh, our Zimbabwe. So what's your response to that? You address that in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, right? It, and it's particularly unfortunate because some of these caricatures have come from, you know, highly respected economists who are themselves scholars. And so the scholarly thing to do when um, discussing someone else's work is to actually read the scholarship and then I think comment fairly on what the other side is saying. So, you know, for someone to say, oh, MMT is the shorthand for MMT is it's a school of thought that argues, as you said, that deficits don't matter and governments can print money freely without consequence. Now, if that's what MMT was about, <laughs> I would certainly quickly dissociate myself because that would be madness. Um, and, and so, you know, what are, what are we actually saying? Well, we recognize that the government is the issuer of the currency. And as a consequence, it is not financially constrained. Okay? It, it does not face a hard financial constraint. Does it therefore follow that the government, because it's not financially constrained, can just spend to infinity without consequence? The answer is, of course not. Okay, what we're trying to do, and I would say what MMT is about, if I had to give you an, like a single sentence, what is the MMT project mostly about? I would say it's primarily concerned with replacing an artificial revenue constraint, a financial constraint, with a real resource constraint, with an inflation constraint. So in fact, MMT centers inflation at, well, the center of the project, right? It is at the core of the project, which is to say, Marshall, if Congress wants to write trillion dollar spending bills and pass those bills, that's what's going to happen. The government's gonna spend trillions of dollars. The question is, can they go too far? And the answer is yes, of course. Right now, we have an economy in a very depressed state. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Businesses are in desperate uh, need, those that are open, for customers, right? They want people to come in and spend money. In this economic environment, the government can safely spin out this $2.2 trillion CARES Act, the $3 trillion HEROES bill that the House passed, but the Senate has blocked. We could do infrastructure. We could do a lot of things right now without pushing prices uh, beyond you know, some modest uh, inflation, 2% or whatever. If we push too far, the punishment for that is going to be inflation. It's not going to be default. It's not going to be insolvency or bankruptcy of the country. And that's the that's the sort of thing we're trying to get everybody focused on. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that and uh, draw on that the inflation because I think some of the more intelligent critics of MMT have suggested that okay, I accept real resource constraint. It's much more it's easier to use a, a financial constraint because you just take an arbitrary number and say if you exceed X, then so I you can see the attraction of that to policymakers. The problem with inflation. You know, it's not like, you know, to paraphrase Potter Stewart when he was talking about pornography, I know it when I see it. Um, you know, you, 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 we have a globalized economy. Um, and so many of the old traditional measures of measuring inflation, you know, capacity utilization, uh, wage rises, um, real resource constraints, they don't seem to apply as easily. So is there a way ex ante 
of identifying inflation because, of course, one of the, the things that the, the central bankers always say is, you know, you, you want to take away the punch bowl before uh, the, the, the party really gets going. Um, and, and so you're making a, effectively making a forecast that it, you don't want to wait till you actually see the inflation before you pull away the punch bowl. So how do you deal with that specific policy challenge? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you you know that for us, we believe that, you know, we, um, we believe that we can better manage inflationary pressures through full employment policy that genuinely delivers a job for everybody who wants to work. So we have this idea of a public option, if you like, in the labor market or what we have over the years called a federal job guarantee. We think that actually provides a superior price anchor better uh, uh, inflation protection, if you like, than managing inflation the way that we currently do, which is relying on the central bank to effectively adjust interest rates with the hope that this is going to cool borrowing, cool spending, and add some people to the ranks of the unemployed. Let me say that, first of all, the Fed has admitted you know, you look at a guy like Daniel Cerullo. Cerullo was on the Fed Board of Governors for many years. He rolls off, he finishes his term, he goes out and he gives a speech, makes headlines right away. What does he say? He says, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, the Fed does not actually have a model of inflation. We don't have a reliable model of inflation. Only they're the institution that we have put in charge of what? delivering 2% inflation, managing inflation. And he's like, I, we don't know. Um, what we do know is that Ben Bernanke as Fed chair worked for, you know, we've tried for a decade to hit our own 2% inflation target. Japan has tried for what, three decades to get inflation up to their own 2% target. The ECB has struggled. The world is, you know, combating disinflationary pressures. And I think a lot of it is uh, down to what you referenced, which is, you know, an increasingly um, globalized marketplace. Doesn't, st- as you say, uh, uh, create uh, moderating inflation uh, pressures on the consumer front. But what a lot of other people will say is, okay, uh, even if I accept that there are other forms of inflation, they have manifested themselves in the form of um, asset bubbles, stock market bubbles, financial bubbles, housing bubbles, which makes uh, puts housing out of the uh, uh, affordability range of a lot of uh, people whose wages have stagnated. So what's the MMT response to that? So look, if you think that um, you know the housing market is beginning to inflate, and let's say your vice chair of the Federal Reserve writes a letter to the Fed chair, right, as Ed Gramlish famously did to Alan Greenspan, warning of trouble, in the housing market and saying, I think we got to take a look at this. This looks uh, this looks like a problem. And Greenspan's response was, no, no, it's a little froth. It's nothing to worry about. Now, how could he have addressed things if he had taken seriously those warnings? Are there other things that central banks can do if they begin to see you know, asset price inflation in a class like you mentioned, real estate? Sure. What, what can you do if you are the federal government and you are providing a backstop in the form of a federal government Uh, guarantees for home loan mortgages. You say, well, you can't make a loan without a loan to value ratio of X, right? That's just one example of something you do on the regulatory or um, 
you know, supervisory front with audits. And I mean, we knew a lot of things. We could have taken action. The Fed could have taken action as a supervisor and regulator of the financial system to deal with it. Also, it also points, for example, to the, uh, the importance of fiscal policy here. Um, and I know MMT uh, often asserts the primacy of fiscal over monetary policy. You know, I, I've argued, but other people argue that, for example, if you had introduced um, uh, ta la taxes on real estate in one form or another, whether through a property tax or land tax, et cetera, you could have moderated housing bubble uh, inflations and, and thereby targeted the, the problem more specifically. The, the, the issue, and I think pe people like you and, and Professor Bill Mitchell have mentioned, is that the, the monetary tool is a very diffuse one because even as you cut rates to help a, a distressed borrower, you're also depriving um, savers of that uh, income. In fact, uh, fe federal, former federal uh, chairman Bernanke said, described that as the fiscal channel, that you know, if you're a pensioner getting money off that social security check, a low interest rate penalizes you. So it would seem to point to the primacy of fiscal policy. Yeah. I well, when you say the primacy of fiscal policy, you mean in terms of inflation? Yes, in terms of inflation. Well, yeah, yeah and, and very few people do think about the interest income channel when it comes to inflationary pressures. You know, I was, uh, interestingly, I was reading the other day, just two or three days ago, I was reading over the Democratic Party platform from 1960, right? This was right before the election of JFK. And the Democratic Party platform included language that said, if we elect our guy, the Democrat, Democratic nominee to become president, he will put an end to tight money policy. He will bring down the interest rate because they argued in the party platform that high interest rates were helping to fuel higher inflationary pressures. A remarkable sort of thing. When you think of Fed independence, and here you have you know, this declaration and an observation not only that um, the Fed, in, I'm sorry, that the president intended to um, lean heavily on the monetary authority to say we, we're going to have rates come down, but also to draw the conclusion that high rates were helping to fuel inflation. And one last thing I'll say on inflation, you look at the Affordable Care Act, for example, or so-called Obamacare. And, you know, when you when you look at some of the statistical measures that we talk about, we talk about inflation, it's the CPI or it's the PCE or it's core PCE. We have all these different things we can look at, but they're all constructed by humans. Right. We build these these um, indices and then we wait. We say what goes in and then we wait the various contributors. So housing, healthcare, energy, those are pretty heavily weighted because take up a larger share of the average consumer's spending basket, right? So if, if prices begin to accelerate in one of those heavily weighted categories, energy, housing, healthcare, it can really move headline inflation. And for a long while, we saw healthcare costs rising very rapidly. Now they still rise at a fairly good clip, mm. but the, the pressures have been contained by the ACA, by the Affordable Care Act. Ask yourself how much more we could contain healthcare inflation, if we had Medicare for all, if we were negotiating prescription drug costs. And that's a way to fight inflationary pressure that has nothing to do with the central bank. So it's just it, another example. It's a, another example. And of course, I, I've always made the point that um, as far as healthcare goes, why, why do you want to put uh, uh, American businesses at a competitive disadvantage by making healthcare a marginal cost of production in the, in the US, which will ultimately be passed on in terms of costs anyway. So 
Um, I want to get back to this point where you were talking about the debt deficit and you mentioned the Peterson people. Um, that seems to be our favorite bugbear. You know, they, they often will go around throwing around this number, 21 trillion public debt, you know, sort of like the, the big debt clock over at uh, Times Square that they used to have in New, in New York City. I don't know if they still do. But, you know, to my, my big complaint has always been that it's just a number. It's a, it's a numerator without a denominator. It's, it's, it's um, given without any kind of context. And, you know, 21 trillion as a percentage of what? Um, and, I, and that brings us into the other valuable contribution that MMT makes, which is the so-called sectoral balances approach um, that Wynne Godley in particular popularized many years ago at Cambridge. I know you knew him, but um, you've, you've discussed this in, our, in your book. You, you talk about how the government's red ink is um, the private sector's blacking. So do you want to elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, um, you know, this is one of those things that I think just brings it into sharp for focus. Once people, uh, once people manage to see clearly then it really does flip the script. Most people suddenly have a very different reaction uh, to the idea of a government deficit. So I usually explain it the way I did in the book. Use simple numbers and help people see what's really going on. So, you know, the, the deficit is just the difference between two numbers, right? It's the difference between the number of dollars that the government is spending into the economy and the number of dollars that it is subtracting away uh, primarily through taxation. So if government spends $100 into the economy, but it only taxes $90 back out, we label that a government deficit. We write minus 10 on the government's books. What we forget to do is look at somebody else's books, right? If they put 100 in and only subtract 90 out, somebody got 10, right? That's why that chapter is titled, their red ink is our black ink. Um, if the government is running a fiscal deficit of, let's say now, $4 trillion, then it means that the non-government, the rest of the economy, and I mean the whole of the U.S. domestic, private, and the rest of the world, has a surplus of $4 trillion. So every deficit is good for someone. I keep trying to really emphasize- It's a hard one because we're not all accountants. And, uh, yeah. and, and that, of course, doesn't mention the, the, the distributional aspects, which is a separate but distinct question. But um, let me bring in one other component of that because you also mentioned the rest of the world. We don't live in a, a, a self-contained domestic economy. Uh, there is a, a trade um, aspect to this. And, and I know um, from speaking to you that trade is one of those issues that I think tends to be a really hot red button um, with uh, non-MMT people because uh, MMTers describe, you know, they turn the, the whole equation around. They say uh, imports are a benefit, exports are a cost. So why don't you elaborate on that and explain what you mean by that? Okay, so in financial terms, we see a lot of people get anxious about the trade deficit because they look at it in the terms of the cash flows. So Donald Trump, for example, famously rants about the trade deficit as evidence that the rest of the world is killing us. They're killing us. We don't win anymore, right? And, he's, and he points to 500 billion, he'll say, in a trade deficit or something. That's how he looks at it, just in terms of the cash flows. And MMT says, well, hang on, right? There's another thing happening. If we're buying more goods and services from China than China's buying from us, it is true that China ends up holding US dollars. But what do we get? we get whatever the manufactured goods and services are that are coming to us, right? In real terms, our um, imports are a benefit and what we export is a cost. So think of the coronavirus pandemic. Think of what was happening when countries were scrambling and competing against one another to get PPE, to get ventilators, to get 
if you were manufacturing those things and then shipping them abroad, if you were exporting them, right, those are the real material uh, goods that are leaving your country that are now not available to you, but they were real benefits to the countries that were getting the masks and the um, gowns and the ventilators and so forth. I was just on a panel yesterday morning uh, with the UN with a fabulous group of, of women. And one uh, of the panelists was talking about, she was, she's in Africa. And she said, look, we uh, produce, I can't remember, 80% of the world's rubber is some huge percentage. And we couldn't get rubber gloves. They were all going abroad. So that's an exports are a real cost and imports are a real benefit. Okay, well, let's dig down to that a little bit more because um, what a lot of people would say is those shortages uh, in this country, the PPE, came from the fact that we largely denuded our, our manufacturing base. We stopped producing that at home. Uh, so we um, let's say that we shifted, shifted those quote-unquote benefits to another country, um, and, there, and there was a cost to that. And, or looking at it in another way, uh, say I'm an automobile worker in Oshawa, Ontario, and I'm building cars for GM, uh, making a good salary. It's a highly skilled position. Uh, my, the car that I build is sent off to a foreign market. Now, you can say um, I'm not allowed to consume the fruits of my labor, but in a sense, I'm getting a good salary. What's the cost to me if it goes to, say, uh, China, as opposed to it going somewhere in Canada or the United States? No, this is what I try to do in the book is to say that, you know, the the legitimate cause for concern that's associated with relying on the rest of the world to produce for us and to allow our manufacturing base to be eroded and to have that production take place elsewhere, not just the risk that we just talked about, not having access to critical uh, goods and services when you need them because you've, you've, you've uh, you know, put that in the supply chain and sent it abroad, but the impacts on communities when, you know, look at, you know, you probably saw Roger and me. I saw Michael yeah. Moore's documentary. It was very impactful. More, you know, probably watched that three decades ago or something. But you take a thriving community where, you know, you had good jobs, union jobs that paid good wages and provided good benefits for workers. And, you know, in very short order, you just decimate that industry. Those jobs leave. Those communities are hollowed out. Um, there's economic misery and devastation because there's nothing to replace those good jobs. And um, that is a legitimate concern when it comes to, so MMT is not saying, hey, imports are a benefit, exports are a cost, so let's just import everything. Let everybody else produce everything. Uh, we won't protect good jobs here and, and, and so forth. It's not, it's not so that it's more. It's more fair to say that it's a, uh, exports are a, Cost imports are a benefit with the uh, proviso that they that we operate in a full employment mm -hmm. economy, and and it's not. I would add that it's not enough just to say full employment because the jobs that we were just describing were good paying union jobs with benefits. You know, you had a pension and all that. If you replace those jobs with low hour, low wage, no benefit or few benefit jobs, then you could still make the case that well, I still have a full employment economy. So you know this this trade arrangement is working well for everyone. I wouldn't make I wouldn't want to defend that argument. Well, so let let me go back then to the the job guarantee program which you mentioned before. Uh, someone's displaced. Um, they they go onto uh, what we have now an army of unemployed. The job guarantee offers a buffer, uh, it allows them to come back into the, the, the market. Um, you've suggested you give them a $15 minimum wage and, and a lot, uh, some benefits. That still uh, uh, might have a cost if, for example, you've been an 
uh, an automobile worker in Detroit and you've been getting, you know, 60, 70,000, there's obviously a hit. And wh- how do you address that point? There, there's, a, there's a distributional aspect to it because the, the other feature of the job guarantee is you don't want to out, start outbidding the private sector when employment com- becomes roaring back and there, thereby create an inflationary sa- spiral in, in, in salaries. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that we need to, you know, rethink the way we do a lot of things. We have allowed shareholder capitalism to drive the incentives for, you know, these large companies to drive costs as low as possible for the purpose of maximizing profit. And these jobs leave. They will seek out. Uh, the lowest cost producers. And we, we've got to try to also get to a place where we bring back a stakeholder capitalism, where we are trying to protect good jobs and disincentivize businesses from moving. Maybe some of the ways we do that is, you know, more worker representation on boards. There are lots of ideas out there about how to do that. So it isn't to say, let's just keep everything else the way it is. And then when the good jobs disappear, we just have this um, floor, this safety net, and the job guarantee is part of that so that people fall from a $60,000 a year job to a 35000 or thirty two, whatever it is with benefit. Yep. It, it is a minimum, right? It is a safeguard. It is a protection. It isn't designed to be uh, a full replacement for everything and it does safeguard you from the. It does also safeguard you from the some of the longer term pathologies associated with long term unemployment. Uh, uh, if you actually have someone that's still actively engaged in the wage force, you know the the skill decay is is much less marked. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely a feature of this program is that you know that the last person an employer usually wants to hire is a long term unemployed person. Their skills have atrophied. They don't have a work history. It's uh, it's much more appealing for employers to pick off an employed person from a competitor in the same industry and bid them away, which by the way costs a lot more. Right. And that's where the wage inflationary pressure comes from, as opposed to maintaining a ready pool of employed people who've had their skills maintained. They have job history. You know, you can call, you can find out about this worker. Do they come to work on time? Are they, you know, do they work well with other people? Do they, you know, uh, and, and employers can bid them away for a smaller premium. Right. Yeah, and but but you are setting a, a, re, a generous floor because, of course, one of the other um, caricatures that one often hears—you see this particularly on Twitter—is you know that you're you're kind of um, you know that the job guarantee is just creating a sort of you know concentration camp style of of cheap labor, uh, forcing people into low quality jobs. They'll be stuck there, and it's not nothing like that of the kind. But yeah, I, I have heard that criticism made. Uh, of, yeah, we all have, and you know, uh, I'm sure that Pavlina Chernova has a, a new book out called uh, "The Case for a." job guarantee. And so she, if, if people are interested in this, and I hope they are, um, she will go through probably every question that will pop into someone's mind like this one. Is it work fair? Are these really lousy jobs? Are you just paying people to dig holes and fill them in again? And, um, you know, she, her book will probably answer every potential question that someone could have. But uh, very quickly, the idea is that these are jobs that are imagined by the people living in the communities where the work is to be done. So this isn't the federal government sitting in Washington, D.C., some bureaucrat saying, you know what this uh, small town in rural Oklahoma, the northeastern corner of the state needs? Here's what, no, no, no. They have no idea what the needs of the community uh, are. So the idea is for the people in the communities to become involved in um, designing the kinds of work, proposing the jobs. You know, our community could really use 
another crossing guard at this intersection where so many problems happen because cars speed by and little kids aren't safe walking to school. Our, our community could really need um, you know, some new bookcases at the library because everything is slanted down in the book slide and it's a design. Our community, we could, we could use some paint which is peeling and lead-based in a schoolroom that hasn't been painted. Our community could use, you know, a garden, this, that. Um, and, and so it is work that the community desires, considers valuable, and it's compensated in a way that I think makes us proud to call ourselves Americans. We pay people a living wage for doing So the point is work. that it's, it's, it may be funded at the, at the national level, but could easily be administered. In fact, ideally should be administered locally or at the state level, as close to the community as possible. That's it's exactly not just some right. central planning. Uh, yeah, central that's planning. exactly right. So that, that's an important point, And I should have uh, included that federally funded, locally administered. So um, that is the way the program is intended to work. Okay, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but one last point about this, because it is often uh, another uh, point of, uh, of debate, um, the job guarantee versus uh, the universal basic income. Some candidates, Andrew Yang being the most prominent, uh, advocated this, uh, a, a UBI, as opposed to a job guarantee. And um, that is another um, uh, thing that um, has created some contention uh, shall we say on the uh, particularly on Twitter, you see this. So, what what do you think are the main features that distinguish and, in fact, advantage a JG versus the UBI? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. So I always have trouble with this question for this reason, because there isn't a single UBI out there. And so I don't know. Sometimes people say, well, it's like what Alaska has. Well, okay, Alaska has sort of what I consider to be an annual Christmas bonus, you know, a From check. A depleting comes, resource as well. Yeah, <laughs> a, a modest check that comes once a year. It's certainly not enough to survive on. So it's not basic income in the sense that you could cover your basic needs with it. It's just a supplement. It's a nice to have a little surprise check uh, once a year. Some people say that it should be enough to subsist on and that everyone should get it. Some people say it should be 30000 a year. And some people say kids should get half that much. Now we're talking real money. Some people say, you know, you, you brought up Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang's was not, I do not believe, a universal basic income. A universal basic income to me means it is you, universal, everyone gets it. Basic covers your basic needs and it, is, it comes in the form of an income, right? A payment. So what he was suggesting was something very different, I think. He said, well, you could opt in. Well, what does that mean? If it's universal, then everybody's in by definition. Yep. But his plan was to have people opt in. And then he said, you got to do the math, right? If you want the money, you need to do the math. Because if you are currently on other government programs, and I don't want to go through the whole list, and his list changed as he got pressure uh, from different groups. But if you are getting support at the state or federal level or local um, for certain programs, you have to decide whether you want to keep what's behind door number one all the, the stuff you currently have, or give those programs up in favor of what's behind door number two. And that was his annual $1,000 a month sort of payment. Now, the problem I had with that, several. One, I didn't have to make that calculation because I'm not on any of those programs. So I just get the money. 
that's good for me, right? But the people who are already so poor that they qualify for federal, state, local aid, those are the people that were asked to do run the numbers, do the math, think about whether you want to be in or out. I thought that was um, well. well. And it also it also severs the the, the link between uh, work and income, and and that becomes important in the sense that assuming that everybody decided I want to get out of UBI and didn't want to work, then of course um, where do you create the supply? That's that, that's that's yeah. precisely the kind of thing that would give you a, a kind of buy bar type of situation. You just yeah. keep paying people. Yeah. I mean, some, absolutely. Some, sometimes you hear this pitched by people who, you know, just want a way to opt out of capitalism. They view wage labor as a form of, you know, some kind of wage slavery or however they often characterize it. I want to be able to opt out of this capitalist mode of production. So just send me my check. And then, as you said, yeah. <laughs> I'll just consume what other people who have remained you know, my, my bunker in Idaho. For me, I, I always approach every policy proposal. My first impulse is to say, what problem are we trying to solve? What problem are we trying to solve? So if we were trying to solve a problem that I think looks a lot like where we are today, which is a lot of people don't have the income or wouldn't have had the income that they need to um, survive in an environment where we were telling them, don't go to work, stay home, don't go to work. And yet your bills don't stop, even though you stop going to work. So sending, you know, cash payments, income support, direct payments to people in this economic environment makes a lot of sense to me because we're trying to solve a very different problem right now. When are, the job guarantee is important because you, we're talking about putting millions of people to work, right? But we can't really do that now. We can put, we can train and put some people into jobs at the moment. They could do contact tracing safely from home. Uh, we could have some people um, deliver meals, do well, wellness checks on uh, seniors, especially deliver medicine. Some people could go out and do some work, but for the most part, we're not going to ramp up a full-scale job guarantee right now and have people out doing infrastructure and other things. So um, on the back end of this, though, we have months where we could implement, we could get a job guarantee in place. We could even put people on payroll and tell them, right now, your job is to stay home because we don't, we were still trying to contain the spread of the virus. We're going to pay you to do that job, okay? And then when we come out of this on the other side, if you have difficulty finding a job in the economy, then we'll keep you on payroll and we'll find work that you can do in the community and so forth. So I think the two can exist. Um, you know, they're not necessarily antagonistic to one another, the job guarantee and the idea of a universal basic income. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted both, right? The March on Washington was a march for justice and jobs. People forget that it was a march for jobs. He wanted people to have the right to a job, but he also said there should be a, a basic income for people who cannot or should not work. And we could define pretty broadly who falls into the should not work category. We say caregivers and things like that, right? So we could, um, we could easily have both. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the point is that um, what I always say uh, to the UBI advocates is that um, let's solve the problem of involuntary unemployment first, and then we can deal with the the, the, the ones that fall within the, the gap. And, and one other point about that, which because I think you you made a very good point about the job guarantee, you know, it, it, there, there is an argument that, you know, all that MMTers are trying to do is use the government to effectively run the entire economy, have it in, uh, virtually everyone under the employment or in serfdom under the, the, a, a job guarantee. But another way to look at it is that it is a uh, an, a program 
that helps to facilitate transition back into the private sector. Absolutely. And, you know, Warren Mosler, I know you've interviewed him before, and I, I bet you he called it a transition job uh, because that is the idea. The, the idea is not to create a program that people enter and never exit. Okay? There may be some people who do, depending on where you are in life. Maybe you're 57. Look, a lot of people who are losing jobs right now and those that said that we think are permanent job losses are 55 and older. So they're not close enough to be able to retire and draw social security, but they could literally spend the next 10 years looking for work that doesn't exist for them. So a program like this provides an option uh, for people like that. But for the most part, the program is designed to um, buttress the business cycle. So when the economy gets weak and employers shed uh, staff, they can, you know, instead of ending up unemployed, they can enter public service employment. They can be part of this uh, pool of employed workers. And then as the economy recovers, which by the way, it will do more quickly with this program in place because you're supporting incomes, they can transition back into private sector employment or other public sector, you know, work for the state, work for the federal government, whatever. Um, but yeah, the idea is that this is something that um, expands when the economy is weak and contracts the size of the number of people in the program, contracts as the economy picks up. So in other words, the goal is actually to enhance the operation of the, uh, of the private sector, not to derogate from it. Absolutely. You're, you're holding on behalf of the rest of the economy. You are holding people in a safe space where they're productively contributing to their communities. They're having some skills upgraded. They may get some education, training, apprenticeships, and whatnot. And when the private sector is ready for them, boy, they can reach right in and they have access, right, at a, at a small premium over the, the wage that's being paid. It, you, you hardly could ask for more. Maybe only Medicare for all is a more pro-business uh, policy uh, than the idea of a job guarantee. Um, so let me get back one final question on trade and then we'll move on to something else. Um, the other side, as you said, is that China is described as one of the big winners because they ship all these goods and, um, you know, that they, they have this massive uh, surplus of uh, the stock of U.S. treasuries. So the argument is that they can hold us to ransom because, um, and this has implications, I think, uh, in terms of the mechanics of the bond market. People uh, that watch this program often uh, are investors in, in, in bonds. So I think the, me the actual mechanics of how uh, the bond market actually works is important here. And, and this is where I think MMT um, does elucidate the position very, very well. So why don't you just go ahead and describe it and why China doesn't hold us hostage by virtue of the fact that they hold trillions of dollars of U.S. treasuries? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll give okay. you a, a short version of that because you're right. People have this idea uh, because our, our elected leaders have told us this, that, you know, the risk that we face is that one day we will wake up and China will turn off the spigot and the dollars won't come out. And then we're in real trouble because how do we pay our bills? So we have to dispel with this idea that we are financially dependent upon China, Japan or other or other foreign lenders or for that matter, any other lender. And that's one of the real kind of arguments I try to make forcefully in the book is that if you are the currency issuer, you never have to borrow your own currency from anyone. Not just that we don't need China, we don't have to borrow dollars from anyone. And so you're asking about the borrowing operation and the, and the bond auctions and so forth. And so what I argue in the book is that we should be thinking about 
bond sales as secondary operations, not primary, not that the government, like a household, goes out and collects dollars. So they get some of their dollars from the taxpayer. And then what they, um, if they come up short, they get the rest of the dollars from savers. So they sell bonds. Now I have dollars. I, I've taxed and borrowed. Now I can spend. MMT is asking us to change that sequencing, to put the spending first, to recognize that the government spends first, and then a portion of the dollars that have been spent reflux back, right? The government ends up subtracting them out of our hands by taxing them away. And then some of the dollars that it puts out there, it converts into bonds. When the Treasury and the Fed look into the future and they say, hmm, how many dollars do we think the government is going to spend into the economy? How many dollars do we think everybody else is going to pay the government in the form of taxes? The difference being the deficit. Then they try to match the deficit with bond sales. So they have to try to figure out, looking forward, how many bonds should we sell? And then they come up with a number. Let's say it's $100 billion. They have an auction. And those hundred, that hundred billion is made available in a market called the primary dealer market. You and I can't bid in that marketplace. Only a small number of, of financial players have access to that market. And not only do they have access, they're required to participate. They can't just turn off the computer each, you know, at an auction and say, I'm not in the mood to bid on treasuries today. They are they are compelled, they are required to place bids. So when the treasury sells bonds, the first buyer is are these the small number of primary dealers. They take up the bonds, and then after they've been taken up in the primary dealer market, they make their way into the secondary, like they can become a pen, in a pension or a hedge fund or um, you know, a little old lady in South Dakota. And in the meantime, on the Chinese side, um, you know, they sell a billion dollars worth of T-shirts to Disney, um, Disney, uh, and, and they probably work that through the, the, the Bank of China. So uh, the Fed uh, credits the, uh, the, the billion dollars worth of uh, a billion dollars into, say, China's um, uh, reserve account, which is actually the, the fancy central bank word for the checking account. And at that point, uh, China makes the decision, okay, what do I do with those dollars? Do I buy bonds? Do I swap it into another currency? Or do I just hold it in, in reserves in my checking account? So it, 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 that's where I think you get the, the, the secondary aspect. It's the, the bonds are not really linked to the sale as such. They're linked more to what do I do with those dollars once I've got them? Do I keep it in my checking account or my savings account? Yeah, so we give China the same option that we give anybody else. If you have what I call in the book, if you have green dollars, if you have plain old regular cash, and you want to um, trade that cash in for a different form of government currency, one that pays interest, you can do that. So when China exports to the US, we pay them in cash, let's say, and the, the deposit is credited to their checking account at the Fed, just as you said. Now China has a decision to make. Do I want to keep my dollars in my checking account? Do I want to use those dollars to buy something else? Or do I want to switch them into what's basically like a savings account? It's their securities account at the Fed. And we call that U.S. Treasuries. Unfortunately, we also call it the, the national debt. And yeah. we say that, you know, it's borrowing from China. It's not borrowed. The, the spending's already been financed. Let me go on to another uh, area, uh, which is related to this. And it's something you discuss in the, in the trade chapter, the, the degrees of currency sovereignty. So what many people say is, okay, U.S. dollar, I get what you say there. They, of course issue the reserve currency. So they have uh, what de Gaulle used to call the exorbitant privilege. Uh, they can do whatever the hell they want. But um, even countries that um, 
don't uh, that do also issue free floating currencies with no peg. Canada, the UK, Japan, they don't have the same kind of latitude uh, that uh, the US does because um, obviously the imports uh, or the cost of their imports are denominated in, in dollars, so there are inflationary implications. And then let's go a step further. We also have uh, the eurozone countries, who of course don't have any degree of national sovereignty because um, they are effectively dealing with stateless money. It's money issued by a supranational um, entity, the European Central Bank. So let's, let's first deal with Europe, um, and then we'll go on to the other, uh, the other ones uh, after that, because I think that's the, the more challenging one. So let's talk about the Eurozone first. Okay, so the, Euro, the Eurozone, and uh, this is fairly straightforward, I think. You had initially 11 countries in uh, January of 1999, agree to abandon their sovereign currencies and become part of this monetary union, adopt a euro. And so those countries effectively transform themselves from currency issuing governments into currency using governments. So that line in the sand that we drew at the start of this conversation, they put them, so they cross that line, right? So Fran- they- France effectively becomes like Illinois or California, as opposed to being uh, a sovereign nation like um, Uncle Sam is. That's right. France is Florida. Italy is Indiana. Portugal is Pennsylvania. See, I like the alliteration. Um <laughs> Uh, no, that, that's it exactly. So that's easy to deal with. There is a currency issuer, though, and that is the European Central Bank. And so this project has gone through stresses and strains, you know, as well as anyone, you've written a lot about this for now two decades, right? 21 years. Is that how long we've had the yep. euro project? And at the end of the day, the thing has been held together because when push comes to shove, the currency issuer has stepped in and done what needs to be done to hold the thing together. But for that, but for those actions, I think we would have have blown up. We would have seen that. Okay. Well, what about, uh, let's go to the next stage. You've got countries like Canada, uh, Japan, the UK. uh, They don't issue US dollars, obviously. Um, Do they have any kind of constraint uh, on, uh, in terms of what they, what they can or cannot do by virtue of the fact that they are not monopoly issues of the US dollar? Well, all governments face constraints, and they do face an inflation constraint, importantly. Mm -hmm. They may be more sensitive to exchange rate risk than the U.S. is, but if you look individually, if you look at Japan, if you look at Australia, if you look at Canada, um, even in spite of some pretty wide swings in the exchange rate over the years, they've not ended up in a perilous situation in spite of running government deficits where they, the, you know, through the, um, ex, through the import channel, they've ended up with, you know, importing inflation and punishing. So there's fiscal capacity in a lot of countries that are not the currency global currency hegemon, so to speak. And, and in many instances, um, as I think you pointed out when you were speaking to a group up in Canada, they often will use the, the, uh, the trade account um, uh, uh, to, uh, to offset the, any kind of stresses they might observe so that you get a, a weak currency that enhances their export sector and that offsets the impact to some degree. Yeah. I think it was uh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes's student, Nicky Caldor, Nicholas Caldor, who said in something like the 1940s that uh, a current account surplus, or you could think of it as a trade surplus, is like having an artificial budget deficit 
that it can do the work of a fiscal deficit. In other words, if you, man, if you manage to do what Germany did for the last decade and amass a huge trade surplus, it can take the place of the government deficit and help fill the bucket, as I use the um, analogy in the, in the book, that the euros start pouring into the German economy, not because the government is providing that support through fiscal deficits, but because their trading partners are keeping their um, domestic economy in pretty healthy shape. Which has allowed their uh, uh, fiscal position on the, on the, at the same time to um, do much better because, uh, of course, the, the trade surplus uh, gives them the uh, considerably greater latitude to be fiscally virtuous, if you like, uh, as I never ha- hesitate to remind the rest of the world. What about um, emerging markets um, that need to secure dollars to secure to um, gain vital I- imports that are denominated in dollars? Would you concede there's a uh, that they face more constraints than say Canada or Japan do? For sure. I mean, in the in the book, and you mentioned, I think, in the opening here, uh, this idea of a spectrum of monetary sovereignty. You know, it, it matters a lot whether you're on, I don't know what you can see my hands, this end yeah. of the spectrum, closer to the US, closer to the UK, Canada, Japan, Australia, or whether you're at this other end of the spectrum. I mean, we could talk about countries like Ecuador, um, you know, Panama, where you've just outright abandoned your currency and adopted the U.S. dollar. And then you've got a whole range of pegs and currency boards and fixed exchange rate managed currencies. But somewhere uh, to the right of center here are countries that have a large amount of external debt. They've borrowed in foreign currencies and or probably and uh, they are dependent on the rest of the world for imports of critical uh, things like medicine and technology, food, energy, um, and they simply don't have the choice. They do not have the capacity to export high-value added goods and services to the rest of the world, develop strength in their own currency, and provide some protection uh, against the risks of exchange rate fluctuations and uh, inflation through the import channel and so forth. So they're in a real tough spot. Um, that, so so they, you, you can see that they, they, there is a, a, a problem or there is a, an additional challenge that they face. Um, even if they do everything right, obviously, uh, um, they, they, they have to be mindful of the fact that they don't have quite the same capacity as a, as a fully developed economy. No, they, they not only, yeah, not only depending on, you know, how extreme uh, what we, what I just described, um, they may not even come close to having the capacity of a currency issuing government. And so the, the limits are much, much different. I write quite a bit about this in the trade chapter in the yep. book. So if people are interested in kind of hearing a further elaboration, that would be where to go. I think you, you discuss, you know, t- trying to adopt in- national industrial strategies, which effectively make them attractive repositories for investment and thereby capture the uh, the, the hard currency in that way, as opposed to say uh, through expropriation or uh, exactly. you know, other more arbitrary. Yeah. Things. So if you're if you're on this end of the spectrum and you want to try to move this way, you don't get to just leap your way there. You know, it's not a two year, five year plan. It may be a fifty year plan. It's it will take a lot of uh, long term investments, coordination, industrial policy. You're going to have to you know, wean yourself off of the dependence on the rest of the world for energy, food, and those and good, good policies that are consistent with broader public purpose, national development, which right. brings me to, I think, the, the toughest issue. Um, and that is the issue of, um, you know, corporate and state predation. Um, uh, our friend Jamie Galbraith, about um, 
12 years ago, well before Donald Trump wrote a book called The Predatory State. And, um, you know, he just pointed out that um, there are instances, and they, people in the developing world know about this, where um, uh, the state becomes a, a major uh, purveyor of corruption or a bad co um, actor, and therefore it makes it harder to um, um, construct policies on the basis of, um, you know, consistent with broader public purpose. And, and I think we could say that, um, you know, you're, may, there's certainly a lot of instances of that today in the U.S. with Trump's uh, running of the economy. So um, how does MMT... I won't, I won't say cope with that problem, but that's obviously a profound challenge um, because you don't want to have the principles of MMT abused by people that say, well, we can just do whatever the hell we want and, and uh, now that we've got control of the printing presses. Marshall, I don't know because MMT is not a panacea yeah. for this sort of thing. It, at, at best, I guess, um, the answer to the question is that it, I hope that MMT increases transparency, that a lot of the ways that some of the bad actors run their playbook is to say that we have to do this because this is the way we get jobs. We have to divert the, you know, if you have Jared Kushner running the show, you know, uh, and, and deciding, well, these are the industries, this is where pockets of money need to find their way in order to get, uh, you know, restore jobs and all this sort of stuff. That narrative can be very useful because it can allow you to carry out your agenda, which is to line the pockets of these players um, and all the corruption that goes with that. But the public doesn't understand. The public's perception is, oh, well, they're just making strategic investments in industries and parts of the economy for the sake of you know, helping all of the rest of us. I, I think that it's important that the public understand that Congress has the power of the purse. I don't want us to be powerless against the challenges that we face. I don't want the elites hiding behind this cloak of, you know, uh, deficits and debt and, um, you know, Christ manufacturing this narrative that pre prevents the rest of us from demanding more and better of our government. And so, I just feel like, you know, this may feel like a small step um, and it doesn't fix the problem, but I- Well, it's, it's, it certainly puts you on the right way. I mean, I, the, the analogy I often use today is, you know, um, at mask wearing, you know, uh, you, you, you can mandate it um, only so far at, at a certain point. Uh, you have to depend on your citizens making responsible and rational choices. You know, the, the, the government can't micromanage every aspect of your life. And contrary to what people think, that's not what MMT tries to do. But as you say, um, if you've got uh, at least operate within a paradigm which um, recognizes the, the potential uh, to, it opens up policy to a range of options that we hitherto have considered, um, quote unquote, unaffordable. I think that's right. And I think on that basis, um, I pretty well exhausted the question. So, um, you know, I want to say that I really appreciate the time you, you, you've taken to discuss it. Um, I do hope people buy the book again. Remember, The Deficit Myth, uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. Um, and I think uh, many people would benefit from um, gaining the insights. That, um, and I know you put a lot of uh, effort into it. So congratulations. I think it's a, it's a tremendous achievement. And um, thank you again for uh, spending the time with us. Today. Thank you so much. Nice to nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yep, yep. Pleasure. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. 
Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.